welcome to Reclaiming Rest Radio. As always, I am your host, Justin Joseph. And as usual, it is my hope that after you're done watching or listening, whichever it is that you happen to be doing, that you walk away strengthened, that you're encouraged to rest in Jesus Christ, that you're comforted by the gospel. Today, I'm going to take a closer look at another word in the New Testament, which causes my brothers and sisters tremendous trepidation. I recently covered the word lukewarm from Revelation 3.16 and the word depart from Matthew 7.23. This time, I'm headed into a couple letters that Paul wrote to a very troubled church. Uh, Those letters being 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, And both letters contain our word for the day. That word being examine. Now we encounter the word in 1st Corinthians 11 and 2nd Corinthians 13. Now, I don't think anyone denies that the word in 1 Corinthians 11 involves communion, but I think many people are extremely confused about the context which surrounds the word in 2 Corinthians 13. Now, regardless Both have caused my brothers and sisters tremendous trepidation, and I hope to set the record straight on this episode. In other words, my goal today is the same as it was with the previous couple episodes, to offer relief and precious gospel hope. Uh, Out the gate, I'll say a couple pointed things. Uh, First, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 27 and 29 is not an issue for you unless you're contributing to division in your church during the administration of communion. Uh, And division is not a matter of having a uh, not-so-great relationship with a brother or sister or two or even more. Um, It is not division if someone annoys you uh, or you annoy someone. And I would also argue that such division isn't even possible today, culturally, 
speaking. And I'll explain why later. Uh, second, if you believe that Jesus Christ appointed Paul as one of his apostles, and that Paul preached and taught the biblical gospel, 2 Corinthians 13.5 is not aimed at you. Now, as I did for lukewarm in Revelation 3 and depart in Matthew 7, uh, I'll aim to establish some context so we can gain an accurate understanding for our two instances of examine. But I hope it goes without saying that I can't possibly do that exhaustively on a podcast, given that in total, we have 22 lead-up chapters. Uh, I'll cover what I think are the essentials and leave the rest uh, for your own research and study. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians. Uh, Again, our destination is chapter 11. Well, what do we encounter leading up to that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul addressed division and boasting in the flesh as opposed to boasting in Christ. A couple chapters later, chapter 3, Paul addresses division again, uh, along with the role of God's servants with respect to the church. Uh, Chapter 5, Paul addressed immorality in the church that even unbelievers wouldn't tolerate. Next chapter 6, Paul addresses lawsuits among the members, and you could argue that that's a form of division. In that chapter, he also addresses unbiblical claims like the statement, everything is permissible for me. In the following chapter, 7, Paul answers questions that the people asked about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Next chapter, 8. Paul addressed consuming or refraining from consuming meat that was once offered to idols. Uh, Two chapters ahead, in chapter 10, Uh, Paul offered warnings from Israel's past and warnings against uh, idolatry, apostasy. And Paul also revisited the claim uh, that I pointed out in chapter 6, the statement, everything is permissible. And then chapter 11, which is our destination, Paul again addresses division and the Lord's Supper, which shouldn't be a surprise at this point. 
Now, after all that, you might recall my stating earlier that the church at Corinth was troubled. Uh, And that might be too weak of a term. Uh, But even so, Paul still loved the people (laughs) despite being immensely frustrated by them and with them. Um, Personally, I think chapter 5 alone makes you want to take a shower after reading its contents. A brother in Christ was in a sexual relationship with his stepmother, and he was high-handed about it. High-handed is a euphemism for shaking one's fist high in the air uh, at God. And that situation is something that should just make you think, oh dear, oh dear. But, as the Apostle wrote in chapter 10, we all must be careful uh, not to fall ourselves. Uh, But that specific issue isn't our focus for the topic at hand. Uh, We need to be in chapter 11. So, verses 28 and 29 read, Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Again, just like with lukewarm and depart, I know those two verses have paralyzed and terrified many of my brothers and sisters. After all, we don't want to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. But why are any of us led to believe that we're at serious risk of experiencing that? I think it's because those verses are most commonly applied at the individual level, and how they're applied provokes individual believers to ask themselves unhealthy and frankly self-destructive questions, such as, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Have I confessed sin enough? Or is there much unconfessed sin in my life? For what it's worth, the answer to that is yes. Uh, Is my repentance sincere enough? Noticing that these questions have the term enough. 
Uh, does my life make me worthy of participating in this? Again, after all, we don't want to participate in an unworthy manner, right? Well, verse 29 already contains information that will help us, but please listen to the key verses leading up to the exhortation to examine oneself. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And that, that is dripping with sarcasm. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So, one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. So I posed five questions before reading that portion of the text, and I have another question. Are any of the concepts in those five questions I asked evident in those words? Good enough. Done enough. Etc. The answer is no. Why is that? Because none of those issues has anything to do with Paul's exhortation to examine oneself. That is, despite how the text is commonly applied. Folks, we do well to always remember the original audience of what we read in Scripture. In our case, Paul addressed his letter to, quote, the Church of God at Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So, Paul wrote to people he assumed were Christians. But apart from any concern about being good enough, doing enough, or whatever other nonsense that preachers assault their listeners with 
nowadays, Paul was concerned with division and selfishness. He called out people who didn't care about the poor and were, in a way, showboating their wealth. People were gorging themselves on food and drink, and perhaps right in front of have-nots. And those have-nots went hungry. That's why Paul rhetorically questioned the people who he addressed. Can't you do what you're doing at home? Uh, In addition to those details, you might not know that, at least in the first century, the Lord's Supper involved a full-scale meal. Participants didn't grab tiny forms of bread and plastic cups containing juice or wine, as many of us do now. The supper was a bona fide supper. That doesn't make the tiny forms of bread and plastic cups of drink we consume illegitimate, but there are significant cultural differences with the 21st century church and 1st century church. It's also worth noting that Corinth was a bustling seaport. It was a rich city on the coast of Greece. So, Paul was dealing with people living in a city. In the surrounding regions, there were also what we might call country churches as well. And let's not forget that slaves participated in the first century church, but not easily. They worked during the day and often attended gatherings in the evening straight out of whatever field they were working. There was no change of clothes, no bathing, None of that stuff that we might do and do do today. And while scripture doesn't explicitly state that our brother uh, Eutychus in the book of Acts was a slave, the fact that he fell into a deep sleep and fell out a window is an indication that he had a long day of work. But regardless of all that, the Lord's Supper is always meant to be a corporate affair that strengthens the faith of every individual involved. Uh, And it's also always meant to strengthen the unity of the body as a whole. So, brothers and sisters, Unless we are humiliating the poor 
and gorging on our own food and drink, there is no way to eat or drink in an unworthy manner. Again, it is a corporate issue. It isn't about individual performance and unconfessed sin, but whether the members of the body are guilty of the sin that Paul identified and for which he called them out. So please, don't be shy about breathing a sigh of relief. You are entitled to gospel hope. Now to close the loop on this part of the topic, I will address the preachers who would push back on what I've said. Um, to do that, I quote our brother John Calvin in his Institutes uh, 6.28. His words, quote, And certainly it were too stupid, not to say idiotical. Yeah, I guess that's a word, idiotical. Uh, to require to the receiving of the sacrament a perfection which would render the sacrament vain and superfluous, because it was not instituted for the perfect, but for the infirm and weak, to stir up, excite, stimulate, exercise the feeling of faith and charity, and at the same time correct the deficiency of both. So, Calvin basically said that the Lord's Supper is not for the strong, but the weak. And that's all of us. It is idiotic to rob any believer of the precious means of grace that is communion by believing one must be worthy apart from Christ to receive it. Brothers and sisters, Christ says that his body and blood are for you. Take and eat and drink and glory in his gospel grace. Okay? Now on to examine part two. 2 Corinthians 13. Uh, after writing and distributing 1 Corinthians, uh, we learn that a visit Paul made to the church in person didn't go well. Uh, he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that, quote, in fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, 
I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. Uh, the person who caused Paul pain uh, might have been the brother uh, guilty of engaging in immorality with his stepmother. Uh, he addressed that in 1 Corinthians 5, which I uh, touched on a little bit earlier. Now, despite having written to this church out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, Paul rejoiced when Titus, uh, our brother, returned to him and reported that the people had strong affection for him. We encounter that in chapter 7, verses 6 through 15. By all means, look up uh, that portion of the, of the text and, and read it for yourself. However, all was not exactly well. Uh, one of the significant reasons why Paul wrote 2 Corinthians was to defend his apostolic ministry. Uh, he introduces that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 and briefly touches on it in chapter 7, verse 2. But the meat of his comments on the topic appear across chapters 10 through 13. You see, the Greek culture valued certain things. Uh, power. And I think that's an obvious one, given their mythology. Uh, wisdom, though not the wisdom of God, uh, more like the philosophical kind. Uh, it valued a chic appearance. Uh, it valued eloquence in speaking. But... As Paul readily admitted, he didn't have a positive reputation in those categories. Uh, to make matters worse, there were people uh, Paul deemed super apostles. Other terms are false apostles, uh, even servants of Satan. Uh, they were distorting the gospel at best and denying it at worst. Uh, they projected power. They projected 
self-sufficiency. Uh, they projected proficiency and were selling all of it as Christianity. Uh, and isn't that interesting? Isn't that what happens across many churches today? In any case, we can gather from Paul's comments a suspicion that some people in the church were buying what the super apostles were selling, which was another gospel. And that is the whole point behind Paul's exhortation to examine yourselves. I'll read chapter 13, verses 5 through 7 for a fuller picture. Uh, one translation says, quote, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? And I hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test. But we pray to God that you do nothing wrong. Not that we may appear to pass, pass the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. So, question. Where in the words I just read does Paul even suggest? Check your fruit. Evaluate the quality of your sanctification. After all, those are the common applications, among others. The answer to my question is nowhere. Then, what was Paul's point? Well, throughout the letter, he emphasized over and over that the believers in the church at Corinth were believers because of Christ's work through Paul's gospel ministry. Paul emphasized over and over that Christ displays his strength through our weakness. And now people are reconsidering? Well, again, given the Greek culture, unfortunate, but not terribly surprising. In other words, Paul exhorts the people who are, in a way, examining him to instead examine themselves. In courtroom speak, Paul went from accused or defendant to accuser or prosecutor. He essentially said to the people, if any of you sincerely believe 
that I'm illegitimate, you're only telling on yourselves. Uh, I personally wouldn't be surprised if some of those people were genuine believers. Just very confused genuine believers. And remember, brothers and sisters, it also isn't unusual for any given local church body today to be attended by one or more unbelievers. But just because those people happened to be addressed in an inspired letter like 2 Corinthians doesn't mean that genuine believers who don't question Paul's apostleship are in the same crosshairs. I wouldn't be surprised if those folks in the church at Corinth were deeply troubled by the controversy. So, if you believe that Jesus Christ appointed Paul as one of his apostles, and you believe the gospel that he preached and taught, then 2 Corinthians 13.5 is of no concern to you. I don't mean not to care about it or pretend that it isn't there. But the motivation behind Paul having written it has nothing to do with you. It's unfortunate to me how many Christians use 2 Corinthians 13.5 as a proof text to motivate people. They're essentially treating chapter 13 as the whole letter, and you can't do that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13 depends on 2 Corinthians 1 and everything else in between. Uh, The same goes for 1 Corinthians 11 that was covered earlier. And 1 Corinthians 1, and everything else in between. Now, don't misunderstand me to say that we can't talk about uh, a single verse uh, or verses of Scripture in isolation, but understand me to say that much about them can be asserted incorrectly without the fuller picture. If you wrote a 10-paragraph letter to someone and the recipient only read paragraph 8, there is little chance the person could accurately explain what was ultimately being communicated by that paragraph, much less the contents of the entire letter. Yet, that is how many Christians approach how they preach and teach Scripture. 
brothers and sisters, I hope you are all collectively breathing sighs of relief. I hope that gospel hope has permeated your minds and hearts. But now, to play devil's advocate. Are there occasions to examine ourselves? Sure. But we should always, always, always do it depending on the spirit who indwells us and remembering our permanent status as children of God. Uh, doing that can help us to identify patterns of sin in our lives, among other things. But, as the saying goes, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. We should be, as Hebrews 12.2 states, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't think we should ever look within ourselves casually. We'll, we'll only see corruption and come out discouraged at minimum. That especially goes for those of us with a tender conscience. But, as our brother Martin Luther once said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. Let us all adopt that perspective, that attitude, and encourage others accordingly.